You are listening to Beautiful Minds, the podcast. Beautiful Minds captures honest and optimistic conversations with smart, passionate, and genuine people who seek to change the world for the better. For now, we're starting small with a series of portraits of individuals who, in 2011, got together to study human rights in Europe. They came from different places, different backgrounds, and had very different stories. All they had in common was their appetite for social justice and a motivation to make a difference. Almost a decade later, let's see where they are, what they've done, and what they've learned. At Beautiful Minds, we start small and we dream big. Thank you for tuning in and let's get started. Both of you, how are you and where are you? Where in the world are you? Hi, Morgan. I'm, uh, I'm at home right now home in my in my flat in Oslo uh, on a Friday night to talk to you that's where I am physically uh, mentally I'd say I'm rather tired today because I just came back from a from a mission last night so I'd, I'd say I'm I'm mentally tired but perhaps professionally energized <laughs> that's a good word <laughs> and I believe you're on the on my side of the world so on the America's side of the world um yes right now I'm in Brazil uh, in Sao Paulo state I'm um, here for a long weekend at my parents place actually so there's a lot of green and birds and so it's quite nice uh, it's a life with a different pace that I'm used <laughs> to in Sao Paulo so it's quite good to relax and just be here for a few days and enjoy the weekend. All right so I'm going to bring us back to 2011. So it's 2011, we're about to move to Sweden to start this master's um, that's going to take us to four different places um, in the space of two years. So we're studying in Sweden, we're going to continue in London, we'll spend a semester in um, northern Norway in Tromsø, and then for the fourth term of the master's we'll just scatter um, back to different places and, and um, we're going to graduate in, in June 2013. So Anna, you're not European. You studied the European masters. I, I was wondering, you know, what was your, what were you doing right before the masters? So when it's August 2011 and you're about to move to Sweden, what's your mindset? You know, what do you know of Europe? Have you been to Europe before? I don't even know that. No, not at all. It would be my first time in Europe. I had been to the US uh, a few times for internship and uh, to study a couple of times, but never to Europe. So. It was actually my first time going to Europe, and I remember when we just, when I, you know, got in in the Masters, I got accepted, I looked at where Tromsø was in Norway, and I was just like, <laughs> I just Googled it, and I was like zooming out, kind of, and just like, oh my god, I'm gonna die, this is like so cold, this is like so, so far, <laughs> but... It was quite exciting at the same time. And two years down the lane, has it actually lived up to your expectations? So not necessarily the content of the master's per se, but just your experience of being in Europe and, and of studying um, human rights with, with a bunch of different people from different places. Yeah, I think it was even better than I was expecting in a way and uh, in different actually, uh, since I had never been to... Um, uh, to Europe, I mean, it was just, just like a bunch of whole new countries, people and experiences, you know, ready to, you know, to, it's just there, it was just there waiting for me. So I think 
the fact that our cohort was so actually diverse in terms of like um, nationalities, it was so amazing. And I think the course itself was really good, but I think the experiences that we shared uh, as friends and as, you know, colleagues, it was just so enriching, you know, for the whole experience. I think it was so important to have um, people from different parts of the world, like Asia, Latin America, Europe, US and Canada and and from different backgrounds, right? I mean, I remember very clearly when we started, there were people who had studied, you know, communications and international relations and, you know, there were lawyers and, and political scientists. And, and I think that also made the world experience quite rich. You know, I, I always say that we learned as much from the program than we did from each other because we were such a different definitely. bunch of, of people, you know, brought in brought in together so so that was that was definitely super cool Marie I, I want to move yeah. to I want to move to June 2014 if I'm remembering correctly you flew back to to Norway and then and then what happens you know what happens between this moment when you land back at home and you finish the master's and um, you've graduated and all of this and and the moment when you start your career at um, at the UN in um, in Geneva, if I'm if I'm correct, how did you experience the transition into the um, into the labor market? You know, into the into the job market. Was it what you what you expected it um, to be? And um, and and now looking back, if you could do anything differently to maybe smoothen this transition, would you? Is there is there anything you you'd do differently? Ah, <laughs> that's a big um, question. I uh, I remember that that time as well and so immediately after the the graduation I actually went back to Tromsø and stayed there for a few months uh, until I couldn't really um, justify paying rent <laughs> up there anymore and I and I flew down to Oslo and and stayed at my parents place and, and that's I think that's when I started becoming restless and uh, I mean I was looking for jobs but that was when it sort of hit me that you're you know you're in the middle of your 20s and you're looking for work and you have a, a master degree in in an, an interdisciplinary master degree in human rights and somehow it's not that easy to find paid work with that type of, of, of education. I think I spent quite a few months applying quite intensively for jobs. I mean, quite intuitively, not really knowing exactly what I was looking for, but applying to anything that, that looked interesting to me and that I felt remotely qualified for. And, and, and I think I had job interviews in, in, I mean, pretty much all over the world, in Nepal, in Sudan, in Bolivia, in Colombia. And then I, I think I, I think at the time I wasn't even successful with any of those applications, and eventually I, I I had a phone call from a from a former boss of mine uh, who worked in a in a kind of think tank consultancy company that I had worked for uh, during my masters, uh, and he offered me a job consulting to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I think the the initial contract was about three weeks, and then somehow. I started. Uh, I started it, and I stayed in that. I stayed in short-term contracts, contracts consulting for the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs for about two years. I and, absolutely uh, love this. You know, I love these things that start with like I was there for three weeks. You know, and then two years after, I was still there. I, I think it, it says a lot. You know, about 
how you can do your best to control, you know, your career and to have ideas about what you're planning on doing, but then, you know, life happens. And I, yeah, and I think that's funny too, because there's, I mean, most of the time when you talk about your career path, uh, you do that in an, a job interview setting where you somehow try to make sense of what you've done in the past and try to perhaps convince uh, other people that you don't know that well, that you had a plan all along. And then I think if we look, at least that's the case for me, if I think about it completely honestly, that plan was never quite that clear, right? And and especially as a recent graduate, I mean, finding a paid job that's interesting and fun and that allows you to combine your interests and your professional talents is actually quite difficult. So um, the reason why I wanted the two of you in, in the same episode and in the same interview is because I find it fascinating that eight years ago we were in the same place at the same time studying the same things. But now, Anna, you operate and you live and you work in a country in Brazil, which is your country, which is ongoing, you know, a pretty alarming situation. And I wonder what it's like, you know, to be working in this kind of environment, you know, and in this kind of context. And, and where do you find hope? You know, I think that's really what I'm interested in. You know, I'm interested in kind of where are the pockets of hopes remaining in the country for for change, you know, and for and for the defense of human rights? Where, where do you see where do you see hope? Well, that's a really good question, because I think that's what we are asking ourselves right now. Um, but honestly, I think we see hope a little bit every day exactly on that support system, right? So um, it's talking about what frustrates us a little bit every day and not try not to be completely overwhelmed and completely like dominated by this this wave, conservative wave that hit us. It's, it's quite difficult still to understand like how we got to this point. And I think as part of everything that happened last year, I'm actually uh, have actually started this year like a master's in public policy um, because I actually felt the need to find new ways to to act or how to can I change and like interact with my own country and the people you know next to me you know so I I kind of had to go back to study to have my answers to what I was looking forward. Um, and it's been quite helpful to try to understand um, my country and what it means to, you know, to work with human rights even and especially public policies. That's what we need the most right now, you know, public policies that are uh, directed to change. Uh, that's very like harsh re reality that we have in terms of environment challenges or even like public security in terms of violence and other issues like you no know, health or uh, women's rights and so on. But I mean, we do have so many challenges, but being in a place where um, I said it with other people, you know, looking for the same answers and still trying to hold on to hope, it helps a lot. Yeah. For me, it, it, feels, it feels that I have hope when I'm moving towards um, some that I want to achieve right so just sitting at home and reading the news it can be quite <laughs> depressing if you if you feel like that you're not uh, an agent of change somehow 
Yeah, I think that's that's where my hope comes from. And then, you know, on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, uh, Mary, you're working in, in what is literally one of the best human rights um, contexts in the world. You know, I mean, Norway might have its own issues, and I'm sure every country can, can, can do better and, and all of this. I, I don't doubt that. But are you living the human rights workers' dream? Well, actually, uh, Morgan, I think I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do. I do feel very privileged um, that I'm able to work on on improving the human rights situation in my own country and feeling safe while doing so, which which I think uh, is not the case everywhere in the world. So that's not to say I can agree with uh, with everything in your experience. Your 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 um, presentation of, of human rights in yeah. there because there's, there's certain there's certainly things to work on here as well but but uh, being able to work uh, on human rights uh, in a productive way and feeling safe while doing so uh, feels I mean it's something I think about every day that it feels great at the same time it, it was interesting to hear to hear Anna's perspective on that and and uh, and I think that actually when you look at back at our experience our common experience we I think we started our masters in 2011 and and I mean at that that time the sort of internationally the, the world looked a little differently right and I think that 2011 the the spring before we 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 met each other it was you know the Arab Spring, and That's there were it. so many things that was happening, and then, and then when you look at the situation to, today, there's, I, I'd say that there's a bit of a shrinking space for human rights globally, right? And the rights that we used to think of as, as uh, universal are being increasingly being questioned, and, but I think actually one of our professors said in one of the first few courses we had that, you know, if you ever feel, you know, desperate and and anxious you should it helps to think in a hundred years perspective and if you you know if you in your day-to-day work it seems sometimes it seems like the lows are getting lower and lower and lower and it's further between the highs and then we're really covering a very short period of time and maybe the maybe if we if we keep that hundred years perspective in mind things are gonna <laughs> this is just you know this is just uh a very short period of time and, and eventually things are going to change again. In, in the context of my PhD, I've been reading a lot, a lot of academic, you know, literature and I don't recommend anyone does that, you know, but um, but one of the things that I'm definitely seeing is this, you know, kind of longer perspective, you know, and, uh, and maybe a more relaxed approach to things that are, you know, not necessarily headlines materials, you know, kind of media headlines material, but just this kind of tiny improvement, you know, along the way. And I think think you have a branch of scholarship, you know, in the human rights um, literature, academia, that actually defends this idea that it is getting better. And, um, and, and I think you, you're really right when you said that you feel grateful to be able to operate in safety and to be able to conduct your work, you know, safely. I think that's one of the key um, the key thing that we see in developing countries, that being a human rights defender is actually risky and dangerous and that people risk their lives on a daily basis, you know, to, to progress the human rights agenda in their, in their respective um, regions or, or countries. And so while I feel very grateful that we can be self-critical and, and that we can actually express our concerns, you know, and about our field, and that there are mechanisms within the field to report, you know, on, on what goes wrong. I also feel sometimes like the criticism is a little bit too much. So I guess my question would be, are you, both of you, 
um, and, and maybe Mary, you can go first, but are you disappointed, you know, in the non-profit or in the international ed sector um, from, from your experience, you know, from, from the expectations, as you were saying, that we had when we started this program or when we decided to study human rights, you know, is it actually worse than what you thought it was going to be? Again, I feel like, like your questions bring out memories from the time when we studied and like things I haven't necessarily thought about in a while. Uh, so this is really a fun conversation to have, but, um, I mean, sometimes when you study, I mean, we've studied a very, a very broad concept and we, mm. we use different perspectives studying it. So, I mean, it was very interdisciplinary and sometimes you, you, you think back and you, you think and, and you ask yourself, what did we really learn? But, but uh, if you recall, we did spend actually quite some time on um, organizational theory in particular for the, the nonprofit or the third third sector in organizational theory mm -hmm. when we were in London and and uh, and your question kind of sort of fits within the framework of what we discussed then right because it was all about what what are aid, what's the aid sector doing wrong what is uh, you know what what are charities doing wrong how can they improve etc what what's the aim of a of an organization if it's not you know making money and and uh, it's hard to sort of come up with an answer that fits the entire sector i mean it's it's so it's such a vast sector and there's so many I mean, there's so many things to cover, right, in, in that question. Anna, are you disappointed? Well, it's hard <laughs> to say no. <laughs> but I think, as you put it before, I mean, when we were studying, we were kind of like promised this world that, where human rights were developing, you know, in a really like fast pace, you know. And then a few years later, we are in a very different world where we're dealing with the you know, so many backlashes, I feel like. Yeah. And, but at the same time, we need to value every win, you know, no matter how, how small it is. And as you said, we're talking more about human rights violations, right? And that's a win. And of course, there's going to be like a clash of ideas, you know, a clash of opinions, because we're talking about issues that we didn't used to talk about before. So, of course, people are going to be shocked or people are going to be contrary to to human rights at some point because probably they have never even thought about it, you know, uh, in some parts of the world. It's completely different, right? Their experience and, like, their historical background and everything. So, I, I don't think we should take anyone for granted. I mean... Every little space that we manage to occupy, it's a victory. And I think we sometimes overlook that, you know, that the small things matter as well. And Absolutely. we have to occupy that space, you know, every little win. So we are the voice here, right? So let's let's at least be the voice that needs to be heard and it needs to be discussed, you know. I mean, you're right. The sole fact that we are using this language, that we're able to have this conversation is a win. But also the fact that, you know, the enemies, so to speak, or, you know, the, the people who are on the other side of the political spectrum or on the other side of the, of the equation, they are also using this language, you know. And the fact that they're engaging with the human rights discourse, and sometimes it is to say this right is not going to be granted to this particular minority or whatever, but they're using the same language, you know. So this is also giving credit to the power of the human rights language and to the power of this concept, you know, and yeah. of this. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so I want to talk about the things that we are 
proud of, you know, and, and the things that, that we look back on thinking this was all worth it because of that moment, you know, I think we all have in our careers, um, you know, this conversation we've had with someone or this achievement that we've contributed to or, or that we've led to and, and, and these moments that we look back on and we think this was it, you know, this was the reason why I went into that field and this is the reason why I actually accept to be less paid than most people and to work really hard it's because of that you know that change that I contributed to so but I was wondering if you have any examples you know of moments like this that are for you kind of key turning points you know or, or key celebratory um, victories or successes Morgan, you didn't really give us that much time to prepare <laughs> <laughs> no I oh dear are you thinking in terms of like advancement of human rights in the world because I don't think I I don't think I have a particular <laughs> success or a particular example to give right there Anna do you, do you have a good one yeah I mean a good one I have one <laughs> I mean in terms of professional experience what is success to me I think success to me is produce something that people are going to use it somehow if it helps someone to, I don't know, change their mind about a subject, help someone to implement a project, help someone uh, to talk to someone else, I mean, that's success to me. That makes me happy. And I mean, honestly, what, what do you need to feel successful? And I think it's, it's a question that we have to ask ourselves. I mean, and that question will kind of, you know, point you towards different jobs or different areas that you want to work in. If it means being successful, making a lot of money, probably human rights is not the right path for you. <laughs> That's a really good, a good perspective. Um, and, and I think that also, I mean, we do operate in, um, in an environment where at the end of the day, uh, subjects are the states, right? So it's really up to the governments to to make sure that that they respect the rights, the human rights of their citizens. And then uh, our role as individuals then somehow becomes, you know, putting contributing to the conversation and, and putting putting issues up on the agenda. And I think um, sometimes that doesn't feel very concrete. I mean, comparing to friends. Friends of mine who, you know, have more specific professions who can come home and say, like, mm -hmm. today I built a machine or <laughs> I uh, treated a patient or, you know, it's it's quite quantifiable. And, and in our field, perhaps it's not that it's a little bit more abstract. But, yeah, I, I think that success can definitely be defined as, as you know, helping helping putting a concept up on the agenda or contributing to to the conversation somehow and then. And then that may not change a law in the first place or, you know, um, contribute directly to the well-being of, of, uh, of uh, individuals across the world. But it definitely in the long run, I think all these little successes can definitely have an impact. Yeah, they can add up for sure. And, and you know, within this, I'm, I'm a super strong believer as well of one-on-one um, -on -one kind of impact, you know, of those conversations that you have with people who are outside of your field, but kind of within your network, and you're having a conversation about uh, feminism or, you know, climate change or, you know, any, any kind of issues, you know, the pay gap or anything like this, which sometimes are really painful, you know, to have, but, um, but I do believe that they lead somewhere if they're 
if they are conducted or if they are done in kind of open-minded, open-hearted ways. And if we don't take pride and happiness into this in in this small little moment, you know, then then really there's no point because uh, because the broader the broader um, end goal is is really far and it's really big and it's uh, it's bigger than us. So um, I want to talk about well-being. You know, I want to talk about um, where we draw the line between work and life. You know, the, the kind of work-life balance. I I was wondering what was your take. You know, on how you draw this line. You know, how you protect your boundaries and um, and your kind of own self-care practice you know in general and also I'm kind of wondering to what extent do you see um, self-care and kind of well-being as your own responsibility or as something that should be kind of taken care of by your organization where you work or you know the industry in in general I found that I struggled mostly with the sort of my my work-life balance when I was in in working in an international environment and I think that Within these kind of environments, there's a little bit of a risk of everyone adapting to the the work, the 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 culture of the of the or the most intensive work culture. So so for me, moving from Norway, which has a very has quite a regulated work culture, uh, and then going abroad to work in international organizations, I I found myself working with colleagues who came from cultures where where you're expected to work much longer hours for example mm. than what I was used to and I find that that it tends to be a little bit of a race to the bottom in those kind of environments which I think can be a risk because there's, it's true that there's if you have this uh, status attached to to being always tired and being always staying late in the office and always sort of sacrifice sacrificing your your own well-being for work uh, and I think that that's a, a little bit of of a perversion within our sector like this idea that if you're an aid worker or a human rights worker you should you kind of you should accept giving up your own rights safety or comfort in order to promote the right safety or comfort of other people but you know there's especially if you look at the international um aid sector there's a lot of arrogance in that assumption right and almost a little bit of savior syndrome and just in that so so i think that's definitely definitely time for the sector to think critically about that but yeah no i totally agree with smarty i think it's wonderful if you have an employee that actually helps you uh, to take care of your mental and physical health i mean i wish we had more of that uh here in brazil uh, i think there's something that is very kind of like um complicated in the human rights sector it's just like sometimes you have that discourse of working for our cause even if you were working for our cause i mean you have to be completely self selfless and just surrender you know everything you know for that cause and it's really not like that i mean we are human beings and we need to be healthy in in order to do our work and to advance you know our cause so i think it's something that we have to be very uh, attentive you know to i think the whole work-life balance is so important because as we were talking about success later and I don't think success can be related to sex success in life cannot be related to just work aspects right so if you have like a balanced life and you have like friends that you see you have family and you have like success in very different areas of your life then 
if one area is not so great, you have other areas that can support you, right? So that's also relates to the idea of having like a different communities that you belong. You know, I think that's uh, that's also quite important. And for me, for example, cycling, it's something that really helps me center, you know, it's sort of like active meditation almost <laughs> when we're cycling for you know, in the mornings, either training or on the weekends. And uh, for me, finding that out, it's it was so important. It was kind of life-changing for sure. And for me, Anna, looking at your pictures of the places you go with your bike in Brazil, it's like active meditation. So <laughs> Now I want to move on to something completely different, which is if we were not doing human rights, you know, if you were not in this field, if you hadn't been studying, you know, international affairs and, and human rights, what else would you be doing? You know, that's, that's generally a question I ask myself quite often, you know. Well, for me, I kind of, well, am working towards working more with public policy, and mm. which is uh, close, but not, I think it's a little bit more complementary in a sense, in terms not, as we were saying, like changing the government, but also working with the government to change the government. Um, but honestly... I have no idea what I would be doing if I weren't doing this, you know. <laughs> and I think it's kind of part of who I am, trying to make a difference somehow. So I guess whatever I would be doing, I think would be related to trying to affect change somehow, you know, making people's lives better. I don't know. I might have been still working on international relations somehow, but just not on not rights based so I don't know I might be working in humanitarian affairs or I might be working in diplomacy but on something different than than human rights or or uh, or I don't know maybe something completely different um but there's so many ways to work I mean this I feel like so, so it's it's almost like the field we're working in it touches on so many things so I mean part of my job right now is is uh um, visiting uh, places of detention. I mean, doing so, we talk to a lot of different different kinds of professions, you know, medical doctors, psychologists, social workers, teachers, educators, psychologists. There's so many different ways that you you could, <laughs> could be working, um, that you could have a job that relates to human rights somehow. So, I mean, I'm sure no matter what we change to, it would sort of follow us around a little bit. Thank you so much, girls, seriously, for, for making the time, um, for being patient oh, with my amateurism and, um, and for having these conversations, you know, because I know they're not easy and I know there are no answers. You know, I'm, um, I'm really very aware of that. But I do believe that asking the questions is the first step towards finding solutions. So thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Also, see you soon. Bye, guys.